So we're going to be, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. We're going to begin at verse 1 and go as far as we can. Uh, I'll try to keep an eye on the time. In a perfect world, uh, we could cover all of this, but Mr. Luke, actually it wasn't Luke, it's whoever divided this thing up into chapters, didn't break it up very well because it's just way too many verses to cover uh, in a 30-minute in a period. Um, so we have a number of events going on here. Um, but you see here in 7, it says when he had ended all these sayings, that, that is that Jesus was in an unknown uh, synagogue, not unknown to him, but unknown to us, and created quite a stir in the last chapter when he healed a uh, man's withered hand. And uh, after that confrontation, he decided they needed a vacation, I guess, and they went up into the mountain and he spent the night in prayer. When he came back down from the mountain, he stopped at a point and called uh, his 12 disciples, probably actually just 11. I don't know if Judas has joined the crowd yet. Uh, and then he went a little further down the mountain and he met a huge crowd of people. And the Bible says, I'm in uh, chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19. Uh, and he, 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 the Bible says he healed all of them. So the sick from all over the area heard word. And what well, you can imagine, if you heard there was somebody up in uh, Burlington that was healing people and was actually healing people, you'd go up there and check it out yourself. And people came from all over. And the interesting phrase is right at the end of verse 19 where it says, and he healed them all. He didn't heal some of them. I've often said in my preaching as he goes through, uh, like the, uh, was it uh, the, pool of Bethsaida, uh, he, he walked to one person and the, the entire area was filled with sick people. He picked out one. But here's the opposite. All the people came to him and he healed them all. And that happens more than once in, in scriptures. Uh, I don't think you can count on a healing in the sense that you can demand it of him, but it certainly is nice to know that if you seek him out, you will find him. Uh, finding an appropriate spot on the hillside. And then he sat down and, and he, he did his uh, the sermon that's actually a half a chapter in Luke, but three chapters in Matthew. And we, we've called it the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know what he titled his sermon, but we call it the Sermon on the Mount. So we begin today's events as he's returning home to Capernaum from that period of time that we call the sermon, after the Sermon on the Mount. We believe he's in his second year of ministry. We believe he, set, he celebrated his second Passover, and this is somewhat after that. So we think he's in the year where he is the most popular. Uh, now, coming back into Capernaum, he's met with a group of people. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Now, a centurion was what we would probably call a captain. And uh, he was generally in charge of 50 to 100 men, at least in Jesus's day. That's not necessarily true 100 or 200 years later in the Roman Empire. But in Jesus's day, that 50 to 100 men comprised what was called a cohort. And uh, roughly it's the size, or maybe half the size, of a marine company. Uh, generally, there were 10 cohorts that made up, or 10 companies that made up a Roman legion, and they went anywhere from a thousand to within the next 150 years, uh, a legion could go as high as 6,500 men. So it really depended on what they were facing. But in Jesus's day, generally, when you think of a Marine company or you think of a Marine battalion, you're looking at what this guy 
was in charge of. The, this was a company commander, and of course there'd be a higher person over the battalion. Now our centurion today was no ordinary Roman centurion. Most of them wanted nothing to do with the Jews. This guy actually used his own money, so we know he was wealthy, and he helped to build a synagogue for the Jews. Whether or not that was the synagogue in Capernaum or where it was, I don't know. Maybe that explains the visit to Nain in just a little bit. Maybe he helped build a synagogue in Nain. It also seems that unusual for a Roman, he really cared about this servant of his, which actually in the Greek is a doulos. A doulos is a slave. When you talk about being a servant of Jesus Christ in the Bible, you're talking about being a slave of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Um, well, let's go clicky. Oh, again, wrong mouse. You think color coded would work for me, but it doesn't. And when he heard of Jesus, there's a conflict here between Matthew and Luke. So we're just going to stick with Luke now. And if you ever want to talk about what appears to be a conflict, I will. I don't want to take the time now. And when he heard of Jesus, heard about all the healing that he had done right out on the hill. So he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, uh, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he built us a synagogue. This is all very odd. It's very odd for a Roman captain to be even interested in his servant. It's very odd for him to be interested in the Jewish religion. It's very odd for him to be uh, seeking healing through, uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that all leads me to believe that we'll meet this fellow one of these days. We're going to be up in heaven, and we're going to say, oh, oh, you're that guy. You're that guy. Uh, you're that Roman centurion. Nice to meet you. And Jesus went with them. He started with them back to the guy's house. We're in Capernaum now. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say a word, and my servant shall be healed. Now, at first blush, you almost think this is rude of the centurion because he seems to be commanding Jesus, but he's not. He realizes, I know, that for a Roman to just show up at a meeting where Jesus is would create an enormous stir. And I'm also pretty sure that he knew that if Jesus came into his house from the Jewish perspective, it would create more problems for Jesus. Uh, Peter had the same problem later on, that you, you, the Jews did not enter into the homes of Romans, and the Romans did not enter into the homes of Jews. And even though this, this centurion is asking a favor of him, he's saying to Jesus, I don't want to cause you any trouble. I know. We know this, too. We, if you're safe, you know this, too. I know that you don't need to come into my house to heal this guy. I know that if you just speak a word, wherever you are, it will be done. So here's, here's a man of infinitely more faith than the average Jew of Jesus' day. And consequently, we read, uh, for, for I also am a man sent under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned and set about and said to the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in all of Israel. And they that were sent, when they returned home, found the servant was healed. He knew that Jesus could heal the servant. He asked the best way he knew how, 
in the humblest fashion he had, and then he left it up to Jesus. You want to know how to get your prayers answered? This is how you get your prayers answered. You approach Jesus in humility, believing that he can heal you, and you put it in his hands, and you leave it in his hands. You just give it to him, and you believe that he's going to take care of it. That's how prayers are answered. Now, when you read Luke, it said it came to pass the day after. The Greek is a little more vague than that, and depending on what translation you're reading, you might see that in your Bible. It's on another day. It may not have been the next day. I, I almost think that would be too much. He went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now, there's no explanation given as to why Jesus went here. I don't have any explanation. I've never heard anybody speculate on why he went to Nain. Now, if you Google this, which I love to do, if you Google this, uh, archaeologists Robinson and Smith identified Nain. They've actually excavated what they think is a village in Nain, and it's 31 miles from Capernaum. Now, if you just went through all those healings and that long sermon, and you got back and you had all that was going on that evening, and you woke up the next day, and you walked 31 miles, you're, you're in great shape. I mean, you're physically up there, you know. Now, if you listen to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, they tell you that it was only 12 miles. Well, I'll tell you, 12 miles is a long walk for me anyway. So whether or not this was the next day, but it was certainly a day following that event. See, that's what he's trying to tell you. He walked all the way to Maine, and there were a lot of people following him. Uh, now, nothing is said as to why he did this. But, but there's a whole lot of parallels here that if you get into the commentaries, it's, it's just interesting. And the, I'm just pulling one, and I, I don't know whether I got this from Robinson or, or uh, Jameson Foster Brown. Uh, but it said, this only begotten son of the father walked all day to raise the only begotten son of a widow because he had compassion on him. It's an interesting parallel. And if I had more time, we could do more but I'm, I'm not going to take the time now. Now, when he came nigh to the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people in the city was with her. The widow means she just lost her husband some time back, and now she lost her son. And in Jesus' culture, when a woman couldn't own property and had a very difficult time financially, and operating in the community, uh, it isn't like it is today. This woman was in a very bad position. This left this woman in a very bad position. Is that why Jesus did this? We don't know. The woman doesn't even ask Jesus to raise her son. Doesn't apparently even know who Jesus is. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where God has come and done something in your life and you weren't even seeking, you weren't even looking. And yet he moved on a need you had before you even realized to ask him. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. Now the word weep not is stop sobbing. So these, this is a funeral procession like you've seen in New Orleans with a lot of people howling and crying and making a big scene and a lot of noise. And of course, she's walking along with her the, the body of her, of her deceased son. And she's wailing, and Jesus says, stop. 
And he came and touched the, how do you say that word, beer? What? Somebody help me with that. Yeah, for somebody else. Well, I don't know. Beer? Fire? Fire. If it was English, it would be fire because the E would make the I long, right? Okay, enough of that silliness. And when he came and touched the funeral buyer, they bare him and stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. I, that day, this is going to be one funeral that they're never going to forget in that part of the woods. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. Now, Jesus will raise uh, three people from the dead. After this, he'll raise Jairus' daughter. And then just before he's crucified, he will raise Lazarus. Now, whether or not he raised himself, I don't know. You know, because some people say, "Well, the Father raised him from the dead," and other people will say, "No, uh, uh, God raised him from the dead." I don't know if you can even differentiate those two statements. I don't even know if you can say there's a difference between God the Father and God the Son. So I mean, but the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15 that it's required for two or three witnesses. And, and this is the first of three witnesses that Jesus has the power to raise us from the dead. This is the proof, if you will, the biblical and legal proof that Jesus has the authority to raise people from the dead. No uh, dancing around, no chicken blood involved, no, no, nothing going on. He just walks up to this dead body that they're trying to get buried before it starts smelling. And he touches the funeral fire and he says, sit up, arise. And he arises. And you'll notice I, that this is sort of a Southern joke. He says, young man. And the reason he said young man is if he had just said, arise, the general resurrection would have happened. So I, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know how it works when you're raising people from the dead, but it seems to me that it was, he always calls the guy's name out. He goes to the young maiden, uh, the young maiden, I say, I say, arise, and he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And the joke has always been that if he hadn't said Lazarus, come forth, everybody in the grave would have come forth. I don't know if that's true or not. It's kind of outside the realm of my experience in raising people from the dead. Now this, this word gets all over town. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that there's a great prophet risen from among us, and that God has visited his people. You know, these guys finally got it right. And this rumor, actually, the word there, rumor, is the word logos. This word or this message about Jesus went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region. Now, it actually was apparently viewed, viewed or heard of by some of the disciples of John. This is John the Baptist now in prison. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. And John calling unto him and two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come or do we look for another? So the disciples of John hear of this event. They go to John. They tell John about it. He's, look, he's hungry for any news he can get about what's going on around him because he's, he's in a dungeon. And they tell him Jesus is reported to have done all these things. And when they got back to John, John sent two of his men back to interview Jesus. I think I go to the next one. And when the men were coming to him, they said, John Baptist, we always say John the Baptist, John Baptist, John the baptizer, has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, 
or look for it for another. Now, I don't know if I'm going to go through it. I think I am. Watch it. Um, Jesus is going to tell us that this is the greatest prophet that ever lived. And, and I want you to see this in verse 20. That the greatest prophet that ever lived had doubts. That's pretty powerful when you think about it. You know, you sometimes, I sometimes think I'm the only guy that doubts. But when you realize that Abraham doubted, Joseph doubted, Moses, Elijah, David, Paul. You could go through the whole Bible and find hundreds of people that struggled with doubt. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that ever lived, had doubts. Now, he had doubts for good reasons. Uh, he knew prophecy, and he knew that all the prophecies weren't being fulfilled. And we explain that kind of a way. But my point here in this message is if you're doubting, if you're struggling, you are in good company. I actually think if you're doubting and if you're struggling, it means you're alive. Stand firm in your faith. Wait on God, and he will show you. God will not let you down. He just never moves as fast as we want him to. And from John's standpoint, he has the prophecies right in front of him, but he has two sets of prophecies. One set talks about a suffering servant, a, someone who's going to come and die for our sins, somebody who's meek and lowly, lowly and humble, and he's going to come riding on a donkey. And then the other set of prophecies talks about a king riding on a white horse, which is going to conquer Rome. And we often talk about there are two mountain peaks of prophecy, and the prophets in the Old Testament could not tell the time that was between those two events. They didn't recognize it. They just saw two mountain peaks. They couldn't differentiate why one was one way and why one was the other. And even the disciples, even after Jesus was resurrected, they didn't get this. So don't be surprised that John the Baptist didn't get this. But, but the point that I'm attempting to make, there's a lot of stuff in this book that we don't get. We don't really understand it all. Just trust it and know that God's in control and put your faith in him. Now, to answer that prayer, that request, I'm sorry, and in the same hour cured he many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and the many that were blind he gave sight. And Jesus said, they, they, they were there watching this thing. See, they didn't want him to just, they did, Jesus didn't want those two men to just go back and tell John what Jesus said. He wanted them to go back and tell them what they saw. Then said Jesus, answering unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. To the poor, the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended. That word in the Greek is scandalon. A scandalon is the little trip that you put in a trap. So don't trip on this trap. This is a trap of Satan. Don't trip over this trigger, if you would. Don't trip over this thing. And blessed are they. Should not be offended in me. That's exactly how it works with us. Isn't it? He shows you something in your life. He demonstrates his power, his love, his healing, his restorative strength in your life, and he wants you to share what you've seen and heard with others. You can read that in Philippians 4.9. 2 Corinthians 1, 4, 2 Timothy 2, 2. God expects us to take our experiences and share them with others. We must not be careful. We must be careful that our limited understanding of scriptures not create expectations that will later cause us to stumble in life. You hear that? 
I almost titled this message Expectations, because everybody in this passage had expectations. And they'll get you in trouble if you're not careful. You're going to have to be careful that your expectations and what you think God ought to be doing in your life doesn't cause you to stumble. Because God is going to do what God is going to do, and all we can do is trust him. After those guys depart, I assume, Jesus starts talking about John the Baptist. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out to see in the wilderness to seek? A reed shaken in the wind? Make sure you can read that. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yes, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, he's quoting Isaiah, which shall prepare the way before thee. He's also quoting Malachi 4.9. For I say unto you, where am I? 24. I got to the page. For I say unto you, among those that are born of woman, there is not greater. There is none greater than John the Baptist. Wow, what a statement. The greatest prophet of all time, at least of the Old Testament. The greatest prophet of all time. Also the turning point between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So then Jesus says, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What? I think Jesus said this stuff just to make us think. Robinson says the paradox of Jesus has puzzled many. And if you think about it, What's he talking about? He's the greatest prophet that ever lived. And yet, if you're in the kingdom now, you're greater than he is. How could that possibly be? Robinson writes, the paradox has puzzled money. He surely means that John is greater than all others in character. But that the least in the kingdom surpasses him in privilege. The privileges that we enjoy as citizens of the kingdom under our King Jesus are greater than anything John had Past tense ever experienced. John is the end of one age, A.G. Robertson writes, until John, Matthew eleven fourteen, And he's the beginning of a new era. He's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. All those that had come after John stand upon his shoulders. Thus, John is the mountain peak between the old and the new. Now, there are two reactions to this statement. I'm almost there, if you're, if you're tired of sitting in that hard chair. And all the people that heard him and the publicans. Now, publican is a tax collector. They're, they're not people. All the people are the publicans. They're a little biased in that, you know. All the people in the crowd and those tax collectors over there justified God. They declared God justice, being baptized with the baptism of God. They considered God was right in making the demands that God made of them through John. And they considered John a great, great prophet. So they submitted to the baptism of John because they saw themselves as sinners. See, they recognized in John's preaching that their lives were not right. That's repentance. And John called them forth to be baptized into a baptism of repentance. 
The baptism didn't make them repent. They were repentant before they got in the water. And without repentance, until we see ourselves in need of a Savior, until we see ourselves lost and broken and hurting, there's nothing God can do for us because we won't call on Him. Repentance is the is the is the crack in, in our armor that brings us to the point of salvation. So when Jesus said that about John, all the people that have been baptized of him said, Amen. That's true. He's the greatest prophet ever. But the Pharisees that were in the crowd and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Notice that's the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized. The Pharisees said, we're not sinners. We're not like these people in this crowd. Certainly not like these vulgar tax collectors. We have nothing to repent of. Sounds like my uncle, doesn't it? Uncle Paul. Oh, Bobby, I don't need Jesus. I've lived a good life. No, that's not what the Bible says, Uncle Paul. The Bible says all of something come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. You can't make it on your own. Without Jesus, there's no hope. These guys, these Pharisees are saying, we don't need to repent. This John was a fool. This John the Baptist. We keep the law and our lives are good enough. I've lived a good life. We are going to walk right. Don't worry about lightning striking me as I'm quoting this. We, we, we think we're going to walk right into the presence of God in heaven itself based on our own good works. What foolishness to think that we could ever do enough good to merit eternity with God in heaven. When one sin, not two, not three, not four, one sin breaks our fellowship with God and there's no hope after that. That's what the Bible says. We are without hope and without God in the world. Without repentance, we won't call on him. And without calling on him, there is no salvation for there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. These Pharisees expected to be honored by a great and powerful Messiah. They expected the Messiah to come riding in on a white horse and I guess bow down to them or at least give them a nod or invite them to the front of the audience and say what a great job they were doing. That's what they expected. Wow, what an experience they're going to get when they die. And that's true for all of us. to think that we're all right in our own merit. Expectations. So this is Jesus' concluding response, and I'm not going to go into the dinner party at the Pharisees' house. I may skip it next week. I may, depends on what I feel like the Lord's leading us to do. And I can almost yawn when I read this. It's like Jesus hears this, and the crowd is all looking at him, and they're all gathered around him. I mean, it's just a mob of people. And he hears the Pharisees, and he says, looking at them, how should I liken the men of this generation? How do I describe you religious leaders? What do you really like? Now, I focus that, if you're listening, on the Pharisees. But it could possibly be the whole crowd he was talking to. The, uh, the one who was repentant, 
and wanted Jesus to do this or to do that or to feed them or to clothe them or to give them a good job or to do this or to provide them a new car or to help them build their house or to, or to get them into a new state or, you know, or it could be he's talking about the Pharisees who think that they should be brought forward and recognized as honorable law-keeping Pharisees. I, I think he was probably talking to the whole generation because it was the whole generation that rejected him. And he knew it. You are all, I'm adding those words, like unto children, sitting in a marketplace, calling to one another and saying, we have piped unto you and you didn't dance with us. We've mourned unto you and you have not wept. You won't play with us. You're like spoiled, unstable children. Nothing my father does in your presence meets your expectations. You resent me because I won't play with you. For John the Baptist came eating bread, I'm sorry, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you will say, he has a devil, but the son of man, I come eating and drinking, and you say, I'm a glutton and a drunk a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. A.T. Robinson writes, the children of wisdom recognize and honor her. Whether in the austere garb of the Baptist or the more attractive style of his master, whether in the law or in the gospel, whether in rags or in royalty, for the full soul loatheth, loatheth, a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Proverbs 27, 7. If you're full and you're not hungry, you're not even desirous of honey. But if you're truly hungry, even a bitter herb tastes good. You know, God comes to you in the garb of a prophet and you reject him because he's too rough. I come to you the garb of a regular person and you reject me because I'm too normal. We've got to find a way to get around our own expectations of what we hope, what we expect, what we think God is going to do in our lives, and we need to put our trust in Him and trust Him through the good and the bad, and we have to recognize that His will is just and perfect and good. Father, we thank You for this time together. We thank You for Luke who took the time to do all these interviews and write all this down. We thank you for the men and women that have given their lives to protect these words so that we might find life in your Son, Jesus Christ, knowing that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Lord, we have called, we have repented, and we trust in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.